I'm Felina. And I'm Summer. And you are listening to Broke and Broken. <laughs> because we're both. The podcast about living your best life by getting real. Hey, broken people. This is Summer. Um, don't worry, Felina hasn't gone anywhere. I'm just tacking on an extra introduction right before we upload. Originally, we did not intend to make a separate introduction to this episode, but I decided to, based on some criticism that we received about the photo that we used in last week's episode, and I just wanted to address that. First of all, I take full responsibility for the artistic decision that was made. I regret nothing and I would change nothing about it. If you haven't seen last week's episode, it was Felina's introductory episode so the audience could get to know her and all her awesomeness. She's an amazing woman. And the photo that we used was a gorgeous black and white artistic concept of her with her guitar. She is wearing a matching lingerie set. Most of her body is actually covered, you know, uh, in the way that the photo is shot, but she is posed so that you can see some of her tattoos because she's very artistically inclined in that way as well and likes to express herself in that way. And, but we received some criticism about that. Um, one me- the one message in, that I'm referring to in particular began with, first of all, real women don't wear lacy things all the time, which is interesting and also patently untrue. <laughs> I know I wear lace almost every day. I know a lot of women who do wear these coordinated sets all the time. In fact, I wear a lacy chemise to bed every single day. In fact, most of the time when you hear me recording solo on these things and all the editing on the podcast, that's usually what I'm wearing. So in reality, a lot of women do. So while the woman who submitted this comment may not, let's not say real women don't because that's just untrue. And the next line was a complaint that she was, that Felina was not referred to as a musician until the last sentence, which actually, I don't think we actually called her a musician at all in the caption for the photos. Uh, I did write the copy for all the social media posts. Um, I don't think any of them ever called her a musician, to be perfectly honest. It said, you know, the special bonus, you get to listen to one of her new songs. However, I see no reason to, it's a very interesting criticism. I see no reason to label her a musician. The first um, line, or the, I'm sorry, the second sentence refers to her as a multi-talented artist slash mother slash angel slash sexy superhero. She's posed with her guitar. I don't understand the reason we should um, label every one of her artistic pursuits, but okay. But the last part, which is really what I wanted to address was the complaint that about what she is wearing and saying that I don't understand why everything involving women has to be for male gaze. And honestly, this photo, from a photography's perspective, it's very artistic um, shoot. I don't see that it's for male gaze at all. I see a beautiful, strong woman posed with her soulmate her music embodied symbolically by her guitar. Um, How this photo came about was, if you remember episode six, that was the one that was about me. I as well was, it was a lingerie photo. How that came to be the photo that was used was this entire conversation happened with talking about our podcast is about the human condition and all of our guests speak about issues that are very difficult they're very difficult for them. They're emotionally complex. 
and they can be very difficult to talk about and you feel very vulnerable and so that was what I was talking about when we were about when we were going through the editing process was that you really do feel vulnerable and so I thought it was important for the co-host to do an episode so that we understand what it feels like to be on the other side of this and so guests understand that we've been through this too and that symbolism in my artistic mind would not go away about the you know laying everything bare and just be putting ourselves out there and being very vulnerable and so I looked through all the um some photo shoots that I had done um over the last couple years and some of them were set up in a way that does kind of cater to male gaze and I didn't want to use any of those I didn't want to use anything that was overtly sexual we wanted something that was just very soft and vulnerable um, to convey that and I think we accomplished that and so when we did Felina's interview you know I explained that to her how that came about it was not a requirement for her but she really liked that concept and so she wanted to do the same thing and I believe she accomplished that and it looks really beautiful and wonderful and really shows who she is she's not trying to impress or you know cater to men she's just being who she is natural and right there and so while I appreciate your feedback always it's time for people to understand that not all nudity is sexual and not all female nudity is for male gaze so you can take that as you um, however you like but um, we will move on to to our guest interview today which is Johnny J otherwise known as Brown Ball of Fury which is of course the name of the episode because she is wonderful and passionate and she can get really excited and, and like really passionate and driven and so and sometimes she does get kind of emotional and angry when you know at injustices and so she's kind of earned that name brown ball of fury or we shorten it to bbof a lot but you'll get to hear and learn more about her and she's really wonderful all right so johnny i have a new co-host her name is felina hello hi felina how are you? Pretty good. I'm excited to do this. This is my first uh, effort at being co-host on the uh, podcast, so I, uh, you're my guinea pig. <laughs> oh, yay! <laughs> All right, so before we let Johnny J jump into her whatever she, wisdom she's going to spread for us today, I wanted to tell you both <laughs> something that happened to me last night because oh, you'll both do. appreciate yeah. this. Okay, so, cause, and, and Johnny will love this because I think the last thing I said to her the other day was, I really hate men right now. So, <laughs> so yesterday, so my new advice for men is, it's, it's okay to talk to more than one girl, but if you're going to send them a picture, you should make sure you send it to them separately and not accidentally as a group message. <laughs> because that happened to me yesterday. <laughs> Dumbass. Like, I don't know. Like, the photo sent, se- sent separately, it came in by itself, but the little flirty comment attached went to, like, all eight of us. <laughs> like, oops, buddy, that was not a good plan. <laughs> oh, my God, that's so funny. Boys are so dumb. You really have to be tech savvy to date these days. Like, if you are not tech savvy and you're dating in this era, you were going to screw yourself. I just hope every, I just hope nobody on that list thought they were the only one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure surprised. there's going to be some other lady who's not quite as, as easygoing as you are. 
Um, okay, Johnny. So, uh, why don't you just, I'll let you introduce yourself because you do it way better than I can and tell us who you are and what you do. Johnny's attention span has, um, <laughs> are you there? I am. There you are. Okay. So why don't you, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself and just kind of tell us what you do. Okay. All right. Well, my name is Johnny J, and I'm from the Choctaw and Oka, Missouri tribe. And I am the founder of a tribe called Geek. And right now, we are also running our Indigenous for Hope campaign since it is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And so we've been taking submissions from Indigenous who have struggled with mental illness and suicide. And they're sharing their art, their stories, uh, videos, and just letting people know that, especially our youth, you know, know that there's always hope and that, you know, even though that we struggle with mental illness and suicide, that, you know, we can thrive in spite of it. That's amazing. What tribe did you say it was with again? Uh, the Choctaw and Ota, Missouri. Okay. Wow. So how did you get started in that? Uh, well, I'm a suicide survivor myself. And so, you know, for me... Part of my healing took place, started to take place actually, like when I discovered that I wasn't alone. Because for me, um, having gone through that experience and struggling with mental illness, it was something that I was always told to keep quiet. Don't let anybody know. Um, you know, don't let people think you're crazy because you won't get a job, you won't go to college. You know, it was something that was very hush hush. And, you know, for example, like even after the first time that I tried to commit suicide, um, instead of having to deal with the questions that would come from, like, my absence from school, um, my family actually just up and moved to oh, the wow. next town over. So they made you feel like there was something wrong with you and embarrassed for that, for having gone through that experience. Exactly. And even afterwards, you know, just because there was that stigma attached to suicide and to mental illness, you know, I wasn't even able to really seek help for it until I was in my 20s, and those decisions were mine alone. And ha and Johnny J and I are related <laughs> in a way. We've got a mutual family. And I remember when that first attempt happened, we were told not to talk about it because we, we were all kids. Um, how old were you at the time? Uh, I was about 15. Yeah. I remember the adults talking and they're like, we're not going to talk about this. We weren't allowed to talk about this. And I remember some of the other kids, how isolating it was for them because they were also dealing with suicidal ideation. And, but it was this whole, you know, we can't talk about it. It's and how damaging do you think that is? I think it's very damaging because, you know, when you're young as it is, you're already struggling just to find your place in the world and, you know, figure out who you are and, you throw mental illness, you throw suicide into that, and, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it could just upend your entire life so quickly and just spiral out of control, especially if you don't have that support system. So how did they handle it? I mean, do you, if you don't mind sharing kind of, you know, the oh, details of what happened. Not. Well, you know, for me, I don't remember much, um, and piece, bits and pieces have started to come back to me, and the thing that I remember is just so much shame mm. of not wanting anyone to know that this was going on in our family because they were worried about how it would look on the family, that it was more of a reflection on their parenting than it was an actual illness. And it was always a struggle because I also have lupus, 
You have what? And lupus. I have oh. lupus. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. So, you know, in addition to, you know, having a mental health issue, I was also dealing with lupus. And the weird thing is, like, my family has always been more okay with the lupus than the mental illness. Like, they, I have a phenomenal support system, like, all through my life when it came to dealing with the lupus. With mental illness, nobody knew how to handle that. And so for the longest time, I was just kind of shuffled between homes. I was shuffled between living with my parents, living with my grandparents, living with my aunt, because nobody really knew how to deal with it. And they, they viewed it more as a behavioral issue rather than an actual, you know, mental illness, like something that was beyond my control. And during the course of any of this, did they ever seek out medical attention for it? Did you ever see a psychiatrist or a psychologist or therapist or? The most that I was able to do was a school counselor. Oh wow! And it was something that they, my parents had met with him before I even started school, um, because it was right after the attempt, and we had just moved, and they had let him know what was going on, and. So, you know, I was going to talk to him, but it was also something that we don't want other kids to know this happened. Right. And so it was something that, you know, like, again, there was such shame and stigma attached to it that, you know, it wasn't just in my home, but it was also at school where, you know, the teachers knew what it was. So they were just kind of, I, I guess you would say, like, they kept their distance a little. And, like, I was kind of like the weird kid. Oh, that and, doesn't you know, help. Yeah. <laughs> And I was, I was just kind of the weird kid with, like, the teachers, and everybody was kind of like, you know, had their little kid gloves on with me, I guess. And so it made me feel really awkward, and, you know, I did feel a little more isolated. But at the same time, because the town that we had moved to, I had a lot of family there to begin with. And so I didn't feel as isolated with the kids as much as I did with the adults. Right. Um, so, I mean, it was just kind of like a weird gray area I was stuck in through most of my teens because you know it's like I didn't really fit in with the kids either because of what I was going through like I oh I even though like they were good with me like you know I had a lot of friends but at the same time like I never really felt connected to anything when I was in my teens just because I felt so isolated like there was something wrong with me and you know I struggled with that like all through my teens and you know even in my 20s it wasn't until like I think I was about 21 when I started realizing that oh okay you know it's okay to talk about this it's okay because this is what I did live through like this happened and this is what is happening and even like that's the first time I got my diagnosis um, because I am bipolar and you know, so, like, it was the first time I started to understand, like, oh, okay, so, like, these, you know, like, these mood shifts that I was having, like, all these feelings, all these um, thoughts, like, these were coming from a very specific place, like, they weren't necessarily my thoughts, but something that was being manifested because of the mental illness, and it took me a long time to be able to discern the difference between what was mine and, you know, what was coming from the mental illness, Mm -hmm. and it's something that I still try to be very um, conscious of, because for me, I am so busy I stay busy all the time so if I start to lose focus on just that one aspect it's so easy for me to spiral without even realizing it and so like I'm never in crisis until I'm in crisis right (laughs) so like like, I'm always having just to be like super aware of where I'm at mentally and trying to discern my thoughts like okay is this thought me is this Mm -hmm. something that I'm actually feeling because of something that I'm going through or is this something that's being put in my head through this mental illness is it 
you know, a thought that's just be popped in there. <laughs> um, so, like, it's really hard for me to kind of keep that balance just because, you know, it, there's such a, even now, like, I really try to fight against the stigma of suicide. I try to be really open about my experiences and what it's like to live with mental illness, especially as a Native woman. Um, but at the same time, there is still, like, that feeling of shame because you see so many people that come through it differently. You know, their experiences, they've, they have mental illness, you know, they've tried to commit suicide, and they come out so much stronger and, you know, so much um, more together. <laughs> right, um, yeah. and, and I know that, and I know it wasn't easy, but at the same time, you see that, and you're thinking, why couldn't I do that? <laughs> Or why can't I hold it together that well? But at the same time, you know, I'm sure other people look at me, too, and think the same thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, comparison is never a healthy thing to do. Yeah. I think we, we all tend to do it and, and always regret it when we do end up comparing ourselves to, to others and where they're at in their lives. Uh, so, exactly. Uh, so have you said you were diagnosed as bipolar. Was that when you were 21 and you, and you started addressing the issues? Yes, and even then, um, I will fight. I fight against medical diagnoses. <laughs> right. I mean, and yeah, so, like, that it makes sense. It took me a long time to accept it because even the thought of having depression um, didn't make sense because I'm always like super upbeat, happy, kind of like <laughs> you know, like I am now, um, which I actually didn't realize was a symptom of my mental illness because <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like I tend to be a more manic. So I am more upbeat all the time. I am, you know, like I talk really fast. You know, there's a lot of things that go into this that I didn't realize were a symptom of my mental illness. I thought they were part of my personality. Sure. Um, And they are to an extent, but at the same time, you know, they, a lot of it is rooted. Like I have... Mm -hmm. You know, someone mentioned my short attention span. <laughs> you know? we, we share that one. <laughs> There's so many things that are tied into it that I didn't realize. And it took me a long time to really accept that diagnosis and to really understand that, you know, depression, that bipolarism, you know, that these are actually mental illnesses and that they're not just something that's deep in a feeling or an emotion. Like, it's deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And it's not just feelings. It's not just sadness. It's not just, you know, wanting to kill yourself. Or it's not just feelings or, you know, even thoughts. Like, these are actually chemical changes that are occurring in your body mm-hmm. or not occurring. And it took me a long time to really understand that and to really accept that this is what's going on in my body, which was ridiculous because having lupus, you know, I'm super aware that, you know, like the, my hormone levels, you know, even my my blood, you know, everything is affected by lupus, um, on that chemical level. And hey, Johnny, I'm sorry to cut you off. We're, we're having a hard time hearing you. Oh, okay. There you are. There you are. Thanks. Am I back? <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, you were mentioning that the lupus and your hormone levels. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just all tied in, like mm-hmm. it's all tied together. Absolutely. And for some reason, I just couldn't fathom depression and bipolarism you know these things being and operating on that same level well and Um, having an effect physically on your body I mean the mind-body connection is such a real thing and I mean I don't I've not really sought it out I know I need the same kind of medical attention in my life for various reasons (laughs) but I mean to find a doctor who will a, just acknowledge that there is a mind-body connection is difficult. It would be so hard. <laughs> like, 
I mean, mm-hmm. to get the true treatment, to treat be treated like a whole person yes, rather than cool. just, you know, a pill for every ill is such a big problem. Yes. Yeah. It, it is. And, you know, I was just having this conversation yesterday because um, I saw another Native woman tweet and she was talking about a counseling session that she had where her counselor told her that she was one of the good yes. Indians. I saw that this morning she was and one I was the, so angry. She was one of the good Indians? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, she said you're one of the good the bad Indians were the problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And which, the bad Indians being the drunks and, you know, the people in the think, area. And, and her, her like, wow. That was her therapist. Her said therapist said this to her? Yes. Did, is she yes. finding a new therapist? I hope so. I haven't seen her Oh, update. my God. <laughs> yes. But, yes, I and was you know, so angry and that's this morning. What, and somebody said... That. Yeah, and somebody replied to it because I retweeted, mm-hmm. and uh, somebody replied, "Well, get a new therapist." And I'm thinking, "Oh, hey," because you know, for me, it took me almost 20 years yeah. to find a therapist that didn't treat my nativeness as yeah. being part of the problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, I got it. Yeah. Well, even so, like, even some of the diagnostic survey surveys they do some of the questions like our our culture and belief systems automatically give us a personality disorder according to their diagnostic scales. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> exactly. So. Exactly. Like, and I felt bad because, like, you know, as natives, you know, that's the reason that mental illness and suicide is such a problem is because we do not have access right. to culturally sensitive or relevant health care. And, you know, when you go into a counselor, you know, most of the time you have to go through IHS and you get whatever doctors they have on staff. (laughs) And, you know, we know how that happens with IHS, and we know the quality um, of doctors that we tend to get. Um, It's usually people right out of medical school because Mm -hmm. they've done that where IHS will pay for their medical school if they contract to work for IHS clinics for so many years. Mm -hmm. So they'll work for the first five years. And we also get doctors who've been disciplined. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. What did you say? Yep. We get doctors who've been disciplined. They're they've been disciplined oh, for wow. malpractice or something, and so part of their sentence is to work at IHS. Wow, and IHS, and I. So I'm forgive me. I'm completely unfamiliar. So uh, please explain. Indian Health Services. Okay, okay. Yeah. I figured, but okay. yeah, it's the clinics from the that are funded by federal funds for for the tribes. Right. So okay. now we have we have yeah. IHS, and then some tribes now are getting their own clinics. But um, even then, a lot of them are still staffed because they're partially funded by IHS. So even then, some of them are still staffed by IHS staff. So okay, it gets kind of difficult to get quality of care. I understand. Yeah, no, I understand. Mm-hmm. And the turnover is so quick. So, yes. it, I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, I went through one year um, where I was currently, and I had three different primaries in that year. Oh, yeah. I never know my doctor's name. I don't even bother to ask when I go to, to an IHS clinic because they're not going to be there the next time I go. Oh, wow. Exactly. Like, I, it's, and it's always hilarious, too, because one of the first questions they ask you is, who's your primary? Yes. Like, um, I don't know. Shouldn't you know that? Let me check this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I never know. I mean, I don't even bother with healthcare. I mean, that's really sad, but, like, I don't even have a primary care physician. I, I just don't have one. Because, I mean, why? Our medical system so screwed up. I, I don't I know what's the point. <laughs> I haven't been to see anyone in quite a while. I need to. I have, but uh, I. Yeah, I mean, I have. There's uh, no point. I have fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. and I, mean, I have a rheumatologist who just wants to give me 
medication. Right. Yeah, that's the problem I'm having. You know, it is. And you really have to fight for yourself because, you know, at lupus, um, at one time, I was on 18 different medications. Oh, I am familiar with how lupus works. My mom passed away about four years ago, and and she had been... she had lupus, yeah. rheumatoid arthritis, and, and she was on, on all sorts of pain meds, mm-hmm. all sorts of meds that, you know, one pill caused these side effects, so here's another pill to help with those side effects, but that pill also causes side effects, right. so let me give you this other pill, oh, and you're in pain, let's also give you some opioids on top of that, and let's, you know, see And as where soon we're... as those start wearing off, you're going to be in more pain from yeah. the withdrawal, so... Yeah. Yeah, she yeah, was she know, was on thirty different meds by the time she passed away. So I got it. Yeah, I mean it's insane the amount of medications that they will try to prescribe you, and you know a lot of people don't know any better, you know, because they right. put their faith in the doctor. Exactly, um, they trust that that physician knows what it, they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and for me, I was diagnosed really young. Um, I was diagnosed when I was nine with lupus. Wow. And so it, I don't remember life before it, which right. I think right. has helped me um, because I've just always lived the way that I have. And, you know, my mom and my aunt both have lupus as well, and I have several aunts who have lupus. And one of the hardest things for them is trying to adapt afterwards to the things that you can no longer do that they were able to previously do. Mm. Um, and then also just, you know, not knowing the healthcare, Like, you know, they're, they're expecting a cure or you know they're expecting some alleviation and they're hoping the doctors can give that to them and you know they on medication after medication after medication and for me like I I rarely do medication like I had to fight with my doctors um I will do treatment if it's necessary and I try and I don't do pain meds at all which my doctor is always thinking is insane but for me what I've experienced is the minute that you take those pain medications, they no longer take you seriously as a patient. Mm. And they no longer take your pain seriously because after you start on those pills, what the image that they get in your their mind is that you're just seeking more pills. Yeah. Like you're an addict. Yeah. And so they don't listen to you when you're telling them that your pain has you know, increased or that you're experiencing something different. So, mm. you know, for me, like I have, kind of just swore off the pain pills, which sucks because every now and then I do need them. Like the pain is too much for me and I'll end up having to go to the ER mm-hmm. and usually I get a shot of Toradol and some steroids and, you know, that, that'll help. But, you know, like for me, it's just like, I don't want to be on pain medication because I need, as it is, you know, being native, they already see you as a addict or a drunk and, right. you know, they already have these misconceptions of who native people are. And then you add pain pills onto that, and it's just a whole other layer of discrimination that you have to go through. Right. Yeah. And not to mention, they make it impossible for you to function in life. Right. I mean, exactly. And for me, I'm happy and kind of, you know, upbeat all the time, regardless of how I feel. And when I'm on pain pills, I am mean. (laughs) I can't. I can't really function on the pain pills. I went here several months ago for uh, migraine 
that was on day four of not being able to function. Oh so they gave me the shot of the Toradol and, um, and Finnergan. And, you know, they're trying to, so I went to, they went to a regular doctor this last time I went to see a doctor and I'm like, okay, look, last time we evaluated, you know, I hadn't had migraines this bad in a while, but last time we evaluated it, they're all hormonally connected. So mm. I'm like, they wanted to try just putting me on birth control pills so we can control the hormones, you know, mm-hmm. and at least reduce them. She wouldn't do it. She's like, I'll give you pain meds for your, to take for your migraines, but I don't want to give you something you have to take every day. I'm like. So you'll give me pain medication, which I'm still not going to be able to function on those days anyway, which is the whole purpose of me being here, but you won't give me birth control pills. Oh my God. <laughs> I ended That's up having to go to Planned Parenthood oh my God. to get birth control pills. <laughs> That's so, so infuriating. That let's let's treat the the symptom and, uh-huh. and not the root cause. Yes. is what that doctor exactly. essentially just said that's, to you. Yes, that's and such you know, that's bullshit. exactly how healthcare works. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. Put a bandaid on the on the symptom. Well, it's more profitable okay. to keep us all sick. Right. You know, we don't yeah. want to treat the actual symptoms or anybody getting better. Heaven forbid. You know, <laughs> put big pharmaceutical companies out of business. Oh. That's why we don't want legal pot. Right. It's going to destroy the opioid uh, industry if if pot's legal because, you know, there's pain management that grows in the damn ground. Right. (laughs) I tried CBD yesterday for the first time, so. Yeah. That helped the anxiety a little bit, so we'll see. Now, hopefully they were telling telling the truth and I'm not going to fail a drug test at work. (laughs) You will not. You know what? I'm going to, I'll give you some advice on that too. Okay. It's disgusting, Mm -hmm. but if you can find... If you can find weed that has been juiced, juiced, okay, so much better for you um, because you don't get high. And I'm supposed to you drink get this? All of the yeah. You what are the odds? It, of me, what are the nasty. odds of me actually choking this down without vomiting? Because it I, sounds like it's going to taste terrible. <laughs> I have a question. Have you ever tried noni juice? I. Uh, it's revolting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you can handle noni juice, you can handle this because it I mean, is disgusting. Just mix it with some carrot don't juice. Get high. <laughs> true. Like you could juice it with that's, other things. That's true. That's but, how I used to yeah. get liquid chlorophyll down. But my with... but my root question is: Can you still smoke the part that is not juiced, like the pulp? <laughs> because I I really don't. I think that's a waste. You don't want that to go. To, I just I'm not wasteful like that, guys. <laughs> I don't want to waste the. <laughs> The pot yes, is all sir. I'm saying. Well, even, well, I'll tell you, like, I've, I've tried smoking, which was hilarious because um, I went to Colorado and I got medical marijuana because, like, I, I was having trouble with my lupus and somebody was like, just get some marijuana. And I was like, oh. uh, okay, <laughs> let me tell you what happened. Okay, oh, please. <laughs> okay, so I had a strain and it was called OG Venom. Nice. And it I love was all the, the names. And it was it was really good medical grade marijuana. And when I was talking to the person at the dispensary, you know, they were telling me all the benefits of this particular strain, and they were like, you know, it really helps people with chronic pain um, and insomnia, which is something that I struggled with. So I was thinking, all right, this is going to be awesome. And I was excited to try it, so I did. <laughs> and I had my rocket cat at the time. Your what? And rocket cat. My rocket cat. cat. She called them rocket. And my oh. cat. <laughs> a cat named Rocket. A cat named Rocket. Got it. Yes. And I only took, and you know, on the advice of the guy at the dispensary, I only took three hits. And he said it's really strong. He and this said, was you your first time smoking? Thing. It was my first time trying this. And let me tell you. 
three hits, I was sitting there thinking, oh, well, I don't really feel anything. And I was like, okay, and I was going to get time. sleepy. <laughs> yeah, he was like, you're going to get sleepy. And none of that was happening. And I was sitting there watching TV, and I had Rocket Cat. She was up on the um, on the coffee table, and she was just kind of looking at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> and um, I flicked her tail, and she got mad at me, so she turned around the other direction. So then I sat there for about 20 minutes, and I was like, Rocket. Rocket, cat, baby cat, and trying to get her attention literally for about 15, 20 minutes, right? <laughs> so she it fixed your problem, didn't it? And looks at me, and I say, meow, and I just started laughing hilariously. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like Stewie from Family Guy when he was just like, mom, mom, mom. <laughs> and then she turns around, and he's like, Hi. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> I know. I was like, I did that to my cat. Like, I was thinking, okay, this is crazy. And then, you know, I was still thinking it was just funny. I didn't think it was anything to do with smoking or anything like that. Not realizing until you were I, high. Okay, right. got exactly. it. Exactly. Not realizing it until I turned TV the TV on and I was watching CNN and just laughing my butt off. <laughs> CNN is not a comedy show. <laughs> it, You're mean, not smoking the right stuff. But I was there. Who watches CNN and just laughs? Like everything was hilarious for some reason. And and then I got the munchies and I was just like, holy crap! <laughs> like, I've never been this hungry in my life. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, how old were you when you did you smoked for the first time? This was probably about I'd say maybe two years ago. Yeah, it wasn't long because I remember her telling me this after she came back. Uh, yeah. That last time you, you visited me when I was in Norman. I feel like we should ask everyone about their first time they got high. Oh, that's a good idea. Like, <laughs> I don't have a story because it was so long ago I don't remember. <laughs> Ditto. I can get, well, actually, I, can get, I do remember though. <laughs> I can give you stories from in between. <laughs> I don't remember if the, when the first time was. <laughs> yeah. And- Funny thing is, like when I was younger. Uh oh, you went you went quiet again. We lost you. Get closer. Hello. Hello. There you are. Okay. Try it okay. again. <laughs> yeah. So you know, like, and the funny thing is, like, I've tried weed, like, you know, maybe one or two hits, like when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But nothing like this. Like, I don't <laughs> even count that because it was not this. <laughs> that was. <laughs> Like, yeah. this is the first time I can actually say that I was stoned. <laughs> and it was, but let me tell you, though, like, I got over that first time, mm-hmm. and it did help. Like, I was actually on a really good sleep schedule, and, you know, just taking one or two hits every now and then. Like, mm-hmm. I was on a really good sleep schedule. Like, I wasn't having any inflammation uh, or yeah. any pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I was just thinking, wow. And then when I started really looking into it, I was like, oh, so, you know, that's why it's helping is because it is an anti-inflammatory. Yeah. Right, yeah. And I was just like, wow, this is kind of cool. And, you know, to know that I didn't have to have any side effects. So when I brought this up to my doctor, he's the one who suggested juicing. Okay. He's like, because you don't get high, so you can function in your everyday life. Like, you're not going to be like a burnt out stoner, just like, dude. You know, like. <laughs> but maybe I want to like, be a dude. Yeah, I mean, I'm just yeah. saying, like, but maybe I still want to. I don't know. I, I know. <laughs> it, 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 it totally takes the fun out of it, but, 
you no, know, I will for... say that I've actually tried <laughs> strands uh, that were uh, heavy uh, sativa based, which is more of a body high than the indica will get you head high and, and make you feel all floaty. Uh, but sativas mm-hmm. are used for pain management quite often. And I'm, I've had several strands where it barely gives me any sort of head high. I can completely okay. function, but my body feels relaxed. And, and that, I mean, it's amazing how, what they can it do. It's, it's so it's awesome. It's so weird to me because I'm, like, I'm such a person who, like, I always have to know what's going on with my body. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when, yeah, like, when they were talking about body highs and everything, and I was just like, what? <laughs> it's like a whole new language. You it have is. You it's have a to whole learn. new sensation. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Well, I mean, that's what we need. I, I'm a full it advocate is. for full legalization of oh, yeah. medical marijuana for the entire country. It needs to be legal on a federal level. It's, well, I think it should be legal, not just medical. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think we you know, decriminalize it. recreational and because recreational. some people's personalities, it, it needs to be, you know, a little mellowed out. Oh, <laughs> for real. I'm telling you. For real. <laughs> I used to be, I'm used to joke about it. I would never do this for the record. Don't, don't people try to get me arrested here. Um, I used to make a joke about that when I worked at this one firm that the, it was all family law and they were just like, you know, I wish we could just put some of this in a vaporizer for the clients when they come in a room. Just give them some brownies. Everybody needs to calm the fuck down. <laughs> By the end of the mediation, everybody's like, ah, you can have the car. No, you take the car. Yes. It's fine. You're finally all happy about this divorce. <laughs> <laughs> Without fighting over extension cords. <laughs> I mean, it's true, though, because, I, I mean, some people just, you know, you know, I, it helps with anxiety, and... Oh, it helps with everything. Just, it's freaking... It's, it's God's, it's like... It's like a miracle drug. Like, miracle seriously. Dr- yes. It's a, I just, I, at the end of the day, we're being told by this so-called free society that we cannot smoke a plant that grows in the fucking ground. Right. And I cannot wrap my mind around how we can be considered free and that be a crime. Like, I just, I, I, I don't understand. You know, what, you know what's really cool? Um, California is so different. Like, I'm still getting used to just people walking around smoking weed. Oh, that's um, right. She Johnny abandoned us and moved off to L.A. I don't blame her. Yeah. <laughs> She's trying to recruit me out there now. I don't blame her. I well, am, we're going to have you know. legal weed here soon, Summer. <laughs> don't escape. Yeah, but... Okay, here's what's really cool about California, though, and okay. I think more places need to do this. They're actually starting to expunge the records of um, previous yes. criminal offenses. Yes, absolutely. That's what needs to happen yes. everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so awesome. I was just like, wow. I was like, okay, now this is what needs to happen. Yes. Like, that's actually, you know, legalizing weed right there. Exactly. Going back and correcting those past offenses, which... You know, to me, are so it's so ridiculous anyway, because when you look at prison systems and just how many people have been incarcerated, you know, for minor offenses, like nonviolent offenses, yes. it's so ridiculous to me, especially because it is predominantly people of color. And yes. think about this. I mean, how many people are using marijuana? Yes, it's fun, whatever. And I think there's this, like, stigma that, 
oh, you know, you just get high to, because you're a fucking loser and you want to just, like, be stoned and not be a responsible member of society. When, in fact, I know, you know, myself included, like, I've used marijuana to manage my anxiety, to yes. manage my mental health issues. And there are so many people who can't afford a doctor, can't afford a real diagnosis, but have discovered that marijuana helps them manage their life mm-hmm. and, and their mental illness so that they can be you know, a functioning member of society and get in trouble for it right. just because they're just trying to fucking function right. in life. And we're ruining, uh-huh. we're ruining people's lives over a plant. It's so dumb. A plant. Yeah, and can we talk about that incarceration and the school-to-prison pipeline for a minute because I'm still, I'm still bitchy about something that happened the other day. Oh, shit. So my kid... He's 15. And yeah, I was going to say, which one? Teenagers are stupid. Um, <laughs> let's just start there. Um, and unfortunately, this one is just like his mom. So uh, so he gets caught at school the other day with a vape. Okay, fine. Punish his ass at school. He deserves it. He, it was a stupid move. Yeah, don't take that shit to school. Mm-hmm. But they refer him. They give, he's got a $181 ticket and a mandatory court appearance where he can get community service and or probation. And we all know probation is a fucking racket that just sets people up for failure and uh, is used to escalate minor offenses. And so I, so the principal calls me and we're talking about this. Of course, I'm at work at the time, so I go into another room and I'm talking to him. First of all, he talks down to me, which I don't handle very well. Mm-hmm. I do not handle men condescending to me very well at all. No. And so I'm telling him how ridiculous this is and he's explaining to me about zero tolerance policies. I'm like, no, I understand what it is. I also understand it's inherently problematic and all he all he's all he'll say is okay, okay. And in the end I kinda I kinda yelled at the principal a little bit and told him I hope he's proud of his contribution to the school to prison pipeline. <laughs> oh my god, I love you so much. I love you. But the reality is <laughs> it's ridiculous that we're referring students to um to law enforcement for harmless offenses. Yeah. And children of color are referred to what was, I know, I, what was, what is it, like three times the rate of other students for the same offenses? Johnny, do you remember? I, I want to say it might even be higher than that, is but... It, it's it's crazy disproportionate. It is. And especially when you look at how many um, natives are incarcerated, especially our youth. Like, mm-hmm. we're less than 2% of the population. Right. We make up, what was it, like, something like 50 or 60%? It's a lot. I don't of know. Of incarcerated youth? Uh, yeah, it's, oh my it's a lot. My oldest son, when we were here in Norman at one point, he was referred to law enforcement on a vandalism complaint because he threw an apple core outside, and it bounced off the ground and hit the side of the building. Caused no damage, but because it hit the building, they referred him to for a vandalism complaint. He was he, he threw a biodegradable. Yeah, he was trying to throw it for the birds to eat. He's he was like thirteen. He's autistic. He did not think through the fact that it could bounce off the ground. <laughs> That's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Yes, I was so angry. But, I mean, this stuff is not, it's not uncommon. And that's part of the problem is we're starting funneling these kids into the system as children. Uh-huh. And for, you know, like you said, like, that's not even a criminal offense. Like, right. no kid should be in the system for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it's, it's ridiculous because you even see um, parents being, scrutinized for letting their kids walk the dog like you know people are having child protective services called on them because their Mm -hmm. kid is walking the dog down the street by themselves yes we had um when i lived over in hall park which is 
well, it used to be Hallport, now it's part of Norman over on the east side. We lived a couple blocks from the school, a few. Um, so it was too close for the bus. My daughter got the, repeatedly got the police called on her for walking home from school by herself. They didn't call, up, halfway she walked with another group and then the other half was just by herself because our house was a little bit off the um, street there. She was the only child who ever got the police called on her. She was also the only brown child walking down that sidewalk. And it was the same woman every time. She didn't want the little brown kid walking by her house. Bitch. Yeah. And the last time, and that's what made us move to the other side of Norman, was because the last time four, she got surrounded by like four cop cars rolled up on her and terrified her. And at the time, her sister was still a foster placement. So I'm like, the CPS investigation could result in her getting yanked to put back in foster oh care. How old was she? <sighs> at that time, 10. My God. So I definitely old enough to walk home from school. Yeah. I mean, my daughter's nine. I can't imagine mm-hmm. how terrified she would be at 10 years old mm-hmm. having four cop cars. I walk to school as a second grader. Right. <clears throat> like, I mean, my school and my school was a little bit away from where we live. But, like, you know, like, in the morning you get up, you had a choice. You could ride the bus or you could walk to school. And it was so to me, it was such a cool thing to do is to walk to school <laughs> to with walk. your friends. You know what I mean? Right. Because, like, I walked to school, like, clear up till I was in, like, seventh grade. Yeah. Yeah. I, didn't, I was, mean, I lived out in the country. I was isolated. So. We were, like, a I two didn't get hour, to do that. We, yeah. we were on the bus for two hours. We but I always <laughs> envied the kids who got to do that. I was like, I yeah, want to walk Well, that was one of the biggest right? culture shocks, I think, with them. <laughs> when I went to um, Frontier High School, which is in a little town called Red Rock, and it's a very rural community. And I had come from, like, mostly urban areas where you could walk to school. So then all of a sudden, you're having to get to the bus stop, like, maybe an hour and a half before mm-hmm. school actually starts. Yep. To get on a bus. And you're out there freezing your butt mm-hmm. off waiting for yes. this. Yeah, that was my life, too. I mean, I grew up out in the yeah, country. Yeah, and then so. you get on the bus, and then you have to smell the fumes of the diesel. And, and you're on the bus for, like, an hour and then you get to school and you have like maybe five or ten minutes to try and grab breakfast to eat and then go to class yes that's how that's how i grew up it was two hours on the bus uh each way as i was teasing some one of my friends the other day because they're they were like they're from oklahoma city right it's li- always lived urban yeah and, and had to drive out to my house which honestly it's not a small town anymore i don't know what everybody's talking about but they're like you live all the way out in amarillo this is so far out it's 28 minutes for me to drive out there where i'm from you gotta go that far for a grocery store yeah <laughs> complaining seriously <laughs> yeah no i got it <laughs> i know i always just think of how different it is like from when i was a kid to now uh-huh and i'm just amazed like the Kids will never know the terrors that we experience. <laughs> like what? For one, teachers could actually beat our butts when we got in trouble. Um, oh, some schools still do that. <laughs> some schools in Oklahoma still yeah, do that. Yeah, some schools still do. But it's so weird the attitude change because you remember back then, like your parents are like, oh yeah, you handle it. And then now it's like, don't you touch my child. My child is a perfect little innocent snowflake. Well, I'm in between. Like, I don't want anybody else hitting my kid. Like, I would beat your ass if you touched my kid. Just send him home. I would take care of this. (laughs) You know, but it's so different, like, the attitude. Because, you know, like, I think when we're, and maybe it's just because of how I grew up, you know, Mm -hmm. like, knowing that there were consequences to your actions. Because my parents didn't really set down rules. 
Really? Um, yeah, me they neither. They really just told us, if you're going to do it, just remember that there are consequences to every action. So every decision you make, that's on you. And you're going to have to deal with whatever comes from that decision. I just got in trouble for being why. big mouth. Yeah, but- yeah, I was a preacher's kid, and so it was all about the appearances, though. Like, they came exactly. down hard anytime you did anything that might make them look bad. Oh, I so, mean. Like, you were get, if you got if you got beat at school, you were getting beat three times harder when you got home. It, you know what that is, it, though, it taught me nothing. It taught me nothing, but don't piss them off and don't get caught. I was the best fucking liar <laughs> in the county. <laughs> And, yeah. and it had the opposite effect on me because I was super careful mm-hmm. because I think it was one time, I think, and I was really little when this happened, but apparently I ran out into the road Uh-oh. and my grandpa spanked me and it was the only time he ever spanked me and he cried. I bet he did. I can't imagine him spanking you. You were his mm-hmm. favorite. <laughs> yeah. So, but he, you know, like he told me that and then, you know, when you get older, they start talking about consequences and stuff and for me, it was don't do anything that's going to cause them to cry. Mm-hmm. And also, don't do anything that's going to get me in trouble. I was super careful. I was mm-hmm. like, I disciplined my freaking self. <laughs> I got a B, I wish I had a and kid. I grounded myself for two weeks. Oh, wow. <laughs> and my parents thought I was insane because it was a B. But I was so disappointed in myself. Like, I was such a, I was a brown-nosing overachiever when I was little. <laughs> my daughter is like, so hard on herself that Aww. she doesn't require discipline. I mean, like, if she just gets the hint of me being disappointed in her, that's enough. Aww. But yeah, when I try know, to actually punish her, like, it's a fucking negotiation. She's like, <laughs> she's like, which toys are you going to take away? <laughs> you know, like, like she's really contemplating which one she can live without. Because if I'm not going to say an important one, she's going to do whatever the fuck she wants to do anyway. That was me. That, me too. Have, have you yep, started evaluating which law school to send her to yet? She's got the perfect oh my God. mind for it. Oh, I know. I know. You know, the funny thing is my parents discovered that grounding me really had no effect because I didn't really go anywhere or hang out with anyone to begin with. So they started, when I would get grounded or I would get punished, they would take my school books so Aww. I couldn't do my homework. Oh, that's so weird. So that became the punishment. Like, my mom would come in my room. She would grab my books. She would grab my radio. Um, anything or in my just books that I had and she that was my that was my version of being grounded is she would take everything and it was hell well, yeah, yeah, I mean, like you that. have to, like, figure out what actually affects your child's mentality. Because yes. I'll look mm-hmm. at Sophia, and she's like, I don't give a fuck. Like, she's got this little attitude, and she's like, fine, take my toys, take whatever. Oh, I'm grounded? I don't care. But then, like, you, you find that one thing that they care about. That's what you take. That's how you discipline them. <laughs> mm-hmm. You don't hit them. You take them. You take, they take the oh, things yeah. they care about. My, my, yeah. Oh, yeah. My, my mom was just... You know, she she found that with the books because yeah. she would give them back to me the next morning. So then there I am, waiting for the bus, trying to get homework done that I was supposed to do the night before, and just like panic mode. Aww. And then you know, I straightened my butt up because That's I didn't so want to do that. <laughs> that is so cute. I, I fake it. threw I I fake thrown away so many of my daughter's toys. <laughs> 
I can't do it anymore because she knows that I really she just like pull them out of the trash and put them somewhere else later. But she watched. It's so traumatizing for her to watch me throw them in the trash can. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens. Uh, every one of my kids is different. Yeah, so I have to like juggle yeah, and figure you know, out who what <laughs> works, what works for each yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. I mean, it's just a different experience too. Just watching kids like now, you know, it's what they care about is so different than what we cared about too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm getting ready to be 38, and I didn't realize how much of a huge age gap there is until I start looking at younger kids now, and I'm just thinking, geez, did I ever look that young? Or, <laughs> you know, like, did, was, did I behave that way? And it's, yes, it's yes, so crazy. Did. Yes, yes, you did. We were all little assholes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, was I? And, you know, like, I'm sitting there, and I always crack up because... I'm thinking, man, these kids will never know what it's like to try and sneak notes to each other. <laughs> oh, that was such now a great... Now they're sneaking around texting and class. That yeah, was such a great part of growing is... up, was was writing yeah. little notes and sneaking them around. I had fake names for me and my friends. Oh, really? Because my dad would read my notes or find them or whatever, oh. and so he, he needed to not know who we were talking about, so... Oh, so you had a code. We all had code names, yeah. <laughs> and, and folding the notes, you yes. know? I mean, it's... It was like this whole art to it. It was. I, it was. I still have a box somewhere of notes oh, really? that me and my friends passed back and forth and little drawings and stuff. Yeah. Oh, very nostalgic. So now I'm feeling old. Child I, right? Yeah. I feel so old. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm about to be 37, so I'm right there with you. Oh, so we're all about the same yeah. age. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, you're also looking at kids like... I think about what dating was like when I was a teenager. Not that I really dated anyone, but, you know, I remember, like, you know, the boy asking you out and, you know, actually having to come to your house and meet your parents. And, you know, I look at dating now and these kids are just like, eh, you know, it's not really dating. It's just there's the hookup culture, which there's nothing wrong with. But, you know, it kind of, to me, it's just like, man, your kids are never going to know what it was like to. I mean, the hookup culture really shouldn't be for kids. Exactly. Yeah, like well, a... it was when I was a kid. I, I don't mean, know where y'all were at. <laughs> I mean, it was. I'm not saying I didn't do it. Yeah. I'm just saying that there are like, uh, like as, a, like when I got divorced and uh, you know started dating again, like it was my choice, you know. Mm-hmm. But whenever I was young and I was, you know, just leaving high school or in high school still, early college years, I was seeking like male approval. It was you know, because of emotional trauma that I was, you know, seeking physical attention. And so it was so different to be an adult in your 30s, a woman in your 30s, and like consciously making the choice to hook up with someone because you are in charge of your own choices and your own body versus when you're, you know, 16, 17 years old and maybe don't have a father figure that Mm -hmm. you should have or, or whatever, and you're trying to compensate you know, and, and using sex and, and those types of, you know, that type of attention is like a way to, hmm. you know, manage. And okay. I mean, and, and uh-huh. so I just feel like it, like, yeah, you, you don't have the emotional and mental capacity at that age to really be making a conscious choice of what you're doing. You know what I'm saying? I think it depends. Yeah. And, and it certainly yeah. does depend on the child and, 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 but the why behind it, I think is really important to address. Like, and if I would have had you know, someone around who talked to me about those things. Like, it just needs to be a conversation you have with your daughters and and your sons, of course. And just how different it is, too, because, you know, like, when I was younger, it was like, oh, you know, 
kind of like peer pressure, like, I dare you to kiss this guy or, you know, stuff like that. Like just innocent, fun stuff. And then mm. now it's like you got kids making sex videos and Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad we didn't have oh cameras my God. on the phone. I mean, the there would be a picture of me naked mud wrestling at 17 if there was videos. So yeah. Thank God. Why was there not a picture of this, Selena? It exists on a Polaroid somewhere. If anyone has that Polaroid. <laughs> I know. You know, it's, it's just funny how, like, things have changed with, you know, like, with technology and just all these things and I know I sound really old by saying that but it's funny just how you know the culture has shifted and how attitudes have changed um just with technology alone like you know it's like you see teens doing now like I dare you to do this I dare you to do that and when we were kids it was stupid stuff you know like stupid but we weren't eating Tide Pods right We also weren't yeah, having... I don't know. I, I mean, I had classmates that were snorting sweet tarts, so I don't know that Idiots. we were that much brighter. <laughs> but also, the yeah, things okay, that you... you there. The things that you did at that age weren't also being forever memorialized exactly. on the internet. Exactly. Yes, and you weren't trying to do it for likes, you know what I mean? Right, or the real time... Become, like, right. a social media star. Where it becomes this competition. Yeah. And so they're mm-hmm. trying well, to do stupider and stupider stuff, too. That now. need for attention, I mean, I'm just thinking off the cuff here, I, I could see myself at 16, you know, rather than seeking male approval through sexual like being promiscuous or whatever, I probably would have been, a, you know, Instagram, internet you know, 16-year-old porn star for as much as I could have gotten away with because that's just filling that that right. need for attention and approval at that age. You're so... Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you and mentioned you know, a child, the, the porn, as teenagers. I cannot tell you how many parents, I, <laughs> how many kids I've had to go talk to at the request of their parents to explain to them the legal ramifications of sending nudes to each other when they're underage because uh-huh. oh you're manufacturing child porn you're transmitting <laughs> if you're sending it across state lines you're talking federal laws here yeah, yeah. so I have to have this conversation with a lot of teenagers because apparently parents are afraid to oh my god like you do you want your kid your being kids. prosecuted <laughs> yeah yeah it's and you know it's it's so sad to see that too but you know at the same time it's just like I don't know I think it's also a little there's a there's pros and cons to things, but you know, oh, I think with social course, media too, yeah. you know, before like to get that attention, it had to be something that had to be physically done. Yeah. And then now, you know, kids can do it online and never have to touch or be touched. And so I do think that for some kids, you know, it may be a little safer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. Yeah. Because they're not going out and meeting up with strange people or just letting you know someone take advantage of them in person, you know, just to fulfill something that's lacking for them. And that's a sad reality that, you know, we don't address enough. Um, You know, we always talk about the struggles that we face with, like, financials, you know, that stability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people talk about homes and kids, you know, oh, they were different in our day. Well, let's talk about why they're different. Because now a lot of these kids have to raise themselves. Because both parents have to work. I raised myself. Um, I mean, I was alone all the time. My dad had three jobs, and he was a single parent, and I was alone all the time. And I know that's a big part of where that that came from, Mm -hmm. that need for attention. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, you know, I always think about this, too, because I look at our tribes. You know, we've been doing some great work and developing our own economies, getting tribal businesses. But at the same time, where these 
businesses are launched, you know, away from communities where parents have to travel, you know, 30 to an hour or more to get to work, that leaves these kids unattended. And I think Mm -hmm. about where I grew up, and, you know, we have a lot of tribal businesses where, you know, if you want to work at that business, you have to travel 30 to an hour and a half away. One of the businesses is on the state line of Kansas and um, Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. which is like almost two-hour drive from where our community is. And when you have both parents working, you know, that's, leaving these kids on their own and unsupported because, you know, even for if they play sports, mm-hmm. you know, they're not having that support in the stands anymore where both parents are yeah. there. Oh, it's going to yeah. be one or the other. I um, mean, and then... I have been in therapy for the last <laughs> seven, eight months and discovered what a narcissistic wound is, uh, yeah. uh, which I have. Um, but it, I mean, it stems from not having that attention from your parents that, uh, you know, very specific ages where, you know, you're supposed to be, you know, four or five years old on the playground swinging and be able to always look over at your mom or your dad on the, on the bench and, and make sure they're, they're looking at you and paying attention to you. And when you don't have that, it creates a constant need for attention and need to be, you know, a number one in someone's eyes. And so you're forever seeking a band-aid to that wound that's created by not having that that attention, that that support at you know really critical young ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, and it's sad because you know I remember being young too, and you know, like I helped raise my brothers and sisters, and a lot of it was you hear a lot of like, oh, they're so mature for their age, or you know, they're yeah, I got that a lot. They're pretty smart for their age, and yep. it's like. No, but you're still kids. Yeah. They're still, like, I was still a kid. Yeah. And I shouldn't have been having to raise my brothers or sisters the way that, you know, I was having to at the time, especially because, you know, for me, um, like, I always helped with my brothers and sisters. It was no big deal. But when I was um, about 18, getting ready to head off to college, uh, my mom left my dad. And my brothers and sisters really didn't understand at the time. And they were still, um, my little sister was, I think, in about, like, fourth or fifth grade. Um, And it really impacted them, like, because my mom is, she's pretty much like a Donna Reed when we were growing up. (laughs) Like, we'd have cookies when we came home from school. Um, You know, like, she was always there. Like, she was just constantly there for us. And um, not to say our relationship with her was perfect or anything, but, you know, she was always there. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, for her to be gone because my dad, he used to work a lot. And so all of a sudden, we didn't have any parents. We didn't have that support that we were used to having. And I stayed. Um, I didn't go off to college. I stayed at home so I could help my dad with my brothers and sisters. And I think about that now, and you hear people, oh, she's so mature for her age. And I was thinking about, like, my little sister was young enough to where she actually started calling me mom, (laughs) which was really awkward. Um but I was the only mother figure that she had. And she wanted someone to identify as that role in her life. Yeah, she wanted to have that. And, you know, so, like, I think about that, and, you know, I think about people at that time where, like, oh, you're so mature, you know, I don't know if I could have made that decision at your age. And it was almost like, but it wasn't my decision. It wasn't a choice, yeah. Yeah, like, I could, like, I could have gone, but then what would have happened to my brothers and sisters? And I think about that all the time because, you know, we struggled and they struggled. You know, um, my brother Elijah 
is the only one of my siblings to have graduated high school. Even me, I didn't really even graduate high school either. I got my GED, which really ticked my mom off um, <laughs> because I dropped out six months before graduation. Oh my gosh. And she was at, she went home. Um, she was in Oklahoma to visit, and we were living in New Mexico at the time. But I dropped out six months to graduation because I was so miserable in the school. <sighs> and it, like, it just wasn't... I wasn't learning like I was just there and I was taking college classes at UNM and you know I had asked my counselor about this before winter term ended and she was just like you know she's like you're already taking college classes she goes you already have your credits you could just you know start full-time this next semester if that's something you're interested in and so I started plotting and I withdrew (laughs) from school and I took the GED test that day. I started taking it. was two days to do, finish the test. And then by the, about a week later, I got my results. And then I started UNM full time. So, and so they let you withdraw from school without parental approval? Well, I was 18 at I the time. Say, oh, you were already 18. Yeah. yeah. So I was able to withdraw myself. And I didn't tell my mom. She thought I was going to school. Because oh. she, she would drop me off. And then I would catch the bus and go to my college classes. <laughs> <laughs> She's sneaking around to go to college. That's so funny. And let me tell you, this is in line with your book punishment. This all makes sense. Yes, yes. And my mom, let me tell you, she almost killed me because she went to go pick us up to take us out of school early. And me and my brother were at the high school. So she went to the high school to pick us up. And they told her that I hadn't been in school (laughs) since January. Oh, wow. They were like, she withdrew herself. And my mom thought I was... I had dropped out and I was just screwing around. Right. Um, and then she found out it was in college, which ticked her off even worse because she <laughs> wanted a high school graduation. Like she, that's something she wanted. She, she wanted felt the like ceremony of it all. That was her milestone. Yeah. Damn it! How dare you take it from her? <laughs> exactly. And you know, like I didn't feel bad about it because, like that, you know, that's what I wanted to do, and um, I had planned to transfer. Be- you know, when I, it was time for me to actually go to college, you know, mm-hmm. I wanted to go to a, a real college. Well, not that a I wasn't college. going to a real college, but, you know, like, have like that experience, like, yeah. stay in a dorm and, yeah. you know, maybe join a sorority and do something stupid. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's the experience I wanted, and it wasn't the one I got. Um, but I think about how those decisions, like, really impacted and just the way people were always just like, oh, you were so mature or you did this. And it's like, no, I wasn't. I, my hand was kind of forced mm-hmm. in a way. And, you know, I look at how that impacted, you know, not not just me, but my brothers and sisters because my brother, um, my, actually, my, but all my siblings, we were all overachievers in some way. How many of you um, are there? Because there's four, there's four of us. Okay. But, like, we were all overachievers uh, because of my parents. Like, they wanted us to achieve something. So, mm-hmm. you know, my brother and sister, uh, my brother Josh and my sister Remy were really into sports, like, phenomenally good. My sister uh, was a, is a really good softball player, basketball player, you name it, she did it. Uh, my brother Josh was actually being scouted for college football and baseball by the time he was in seventh grade. Wow. And, you know, they were phenomenally good. And my brother, you know, once my mom left, you know, that really affected our entire family and just like kind of like the routes that we were taking in our lives. Because all of a sudden we didn't have that support system. 
Right. And, which is what you enabled know, you to be overachievers, I'm sure. Exactly, yeah. which really did because, mm-hmm. you know, your parents were always there to take you to practice, pick you up, talk about what was going on, to be there at your games. And, like, for my brother, um, and I felt bad for him, too, because the school system is so jacked up when it comes to sports. Um, But he was always a star football player. And when he got to be a senior, about the same time that I dropped out to go to college, he found out he wasn't going to be graduating high school. Oh. And he didn't, and it wasn't because, it was because he didn't have enough credits. They Mm -hmm. were letting him play while he was ineligible. Yeah. And he wasn't gaining credits. He had enough credits, like, the credits that he did have, he would have still been deemed a freshman. Wow. Yeah, the and school I went to was that like, sports you know, trick, too. Yeah, we, we, we learned nothing like, in the four years of high school because they had gotten caught letting them play while they were el- ineligible. And so the solution was to just not teach anything in our classes so that the, the sports stars could stay eligible in order to play legally. So we learn nothing in the four years. So the few that do come out with college scholarships then fail out in their freshman year because they're reading at a sixth grade level. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. Like, and I felt bad for my brother because, you know, I mean, they were letting him do everything. He went to, you know, like he was playing football. They went to state championships. They, you know, for him, he thought he was doing enough to pass. For oh. us, as like, because we, you know, like, we would get report cards and, mm-hmm. you know, parent-teacher conferences, and they never mentioned anything wow. that he was failing or anything like that. Because if he had, you know, my 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 dad especially would have pulled him. Right, yeah. And, well, they you know, didn't want that. Just, exactly. No, they didn't. And, it, you know, I always felt so bad for him because, you know, for him, his future was so bright because the minute he turned it, you know, became a senior, that's really when colleges started coming. And, you know, mm-hmm. he had scholarships. And he was like, I'm set, you know, and I get to play football, I get to play baseball. And then for that to happen was absolutely devastating. And he ended up just dropping out because, and I could totally see why he did too, because when we went to the meeting to figure out what we could do, like with, you know, taking night courses or what, what could help him, they were basically like, there's no way he could catch up in time to graduate with his class. Mm-mm. And that devastated him because he did so much for, you know, his class in terms of right. sports, in terms oh of God. just being, yeah, like. To be oh, where was this at? Uh, this was in um, Taos. In Taos, New Mexico? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was just, I mean, it was just a mess of situation. And he ended up getting his GED and going to college. Um, I have these, like, still... grandiose ideas that, like, other states have their education system figured out. And Oklahoma just sucks ass. <laughs> oh. But apparently, no, it's just, I thought it when we everywhere. moved from Oklahoma, I was so stoked because I thought the same thing. I was like, "Oh, this is going to be a new challenge. It's a bigger school." I was like, "All right." And then I get there, and they were way behind where we were in oh, Oklahoma. No, wow. that is so sad to be behind that Oklahoma. That is really sad. <laughs> it to was. Be behind like, them. I was so devastated because, you know, I mean, the school system there was so messed up. I mean, even me when we moved, I was a senior. Mm-hmm. And I didn't actually start school until probably about the second semester. Oh, wow. Because they didn't have enough room for me as a student. Wow. Can they do that? Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I mean, that's not legal, is it? I wouldn't think so. Well, but who knows? I don't know anymore. Yeah, like, I mean, you really don't because, like, I was like, wow. And my brother, um, the one I was just talking about, he was a freshman. And he, because he played football... He was enrolled right away. Oh, yeah. Wow. I made room for him. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. What about and us so, drama nerds? 
I mean, nobody's going to make <laughs> yeah, money for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jama doesn't bring exactly. money to the school. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> I know. And, you know, and the same thing, like, with my sister, too. Like, she was, uh, by the time she was in eighth grade, she was drinking pretty heavily. Mm. And she, what the thing I remember with my sister was, like, she was always smart. Like, she, her grades never dropped. Um, so we didn't realize that she was having a problem. Like, I knew she was struggling with my mom not being around and everything. But as far as that, she just seemed like, you know, like a normal kid, like herself. And then all of a sudden, she started um, disappearing. Did your siblings struggle with um, mental illness uh, or depression or anything as well? Um, you know, honestly, I really do think they did. But especially my brother, Elijah, because he's always been an oddball like me. And out of all my brothers and sisters, I really do think that, you know, he, he probably does have an underlying mental illness condition that's never really been diagnosed because mm-hmm. he doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, I mean, how do you deal with the challenge of getting people to just come in and talk? Cause I know and I'm kind of trying to bring the conversation back to your uh, initial, uh, uh, and what you're doing with your work. Um, but I mean, how do you deal with that challenge of getting people to come in and just address it in the first place? You know, that is the challenge, and a lot of that it has to do with taking away that stigma and seeing that other people are struggling with that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for me, like, I'm open, and it makes my family super uncomfortable for <laughs> yes. me to be so open, um, <laughs> especially now. And even even within just the family, they don't know how to treat me. If they can ignore the problem, good. But when mm-hmm. I struggle and I let people know I'm struggling, you know, I don't keep that in. And when they, I, when I go yeah. home, you know, they're, they have two gloves too, because they don't know what's going to trigger me or, you know, or how it works. Like mm-hmm. they've never taken the time to really understand it. So, you know, it is scary for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially because so much of what people know about mental illness comes from stereotypes, just like, you know, mm-hmm. what people know about natives, it comes from stereotypes. So um, what else do you do? I mean, you share your own story and that's such a great way to overcome stigma and make other people feel comfortable coming forward. Are, are there any other uh, people who are, are talking about their experiences? or? You know? Yes. Um, one of the things that I started, because, you know, for me, that's where my healing really started was just learning that I wasn't alone in that right. struggle. Um, but I started Indigenous for Hope through a tribe called Geek um, because for me, you know, just being that kind of like weird kid when you're younger, like I was super nerdy and geeky. Um, I never felt like I belonged really anywhere. And geek culture was where I found my place. And a so tribe called geek. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. it. I love it. <laughs> but you know, for native, it, you know, like it's okay to be an athlete. It's okay to be like super academic. It's okay. But it's not okay to be a geek. It's not okay to be goth or emo or, you know, all these different subcultures that kids (laughs) identify with. And so through Indigenous for Hope and just wanting to address the rates of suicide that we have among our Native youth and being a Native, having been a Native youth that, you know, felt isolated because of my interest and, you know, because of what I was going through, you know, I wanted to find a way to get people talking. So we started um, through Indigenous for Hope. We the first thing that we did was a thunder a thunderclap campaign, right. and thunderclap is like the social media site where you start a campaign and you can have an image or um, a, t- a text message or um, a 
video and you designate a day that will launch. And by that day, you have to have so many people sign up to support that campaign. And once you hit that number on the day that's designated, um, it will launch that message out across Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And so that's how we started doing this. Um, and then now what we're doing is we're having people that have struggled with mental illness and suicide um, submit art, poetry, music, um, just something that will either share their story or just send a message of hope to other Native youth that, you know, there's always hope. And it's been really working. Like, the submissions that we've gotten so far are such, they're, they're so amazing. Like, I was reading a submission, um, and it's poetry. And I actually did a video for this um, because I was so moved by the words because I was actually crying by the time I got to the end because, you know, there was so much in there that I needed to hear when I was younger. Oh, and even now as, as an older woman, you know, like it still resonates with me because you still need to have somebody tell you that, you know, you have a voice, that you have power, that you're beautiful and that you belong. And so like I did a video for this submission just because for me it was so powerful and I have more that's coming. I actually had a girl send in a song that she wrote and I was listening to it last night and I was just thinking, holy cow, like we have such amazing native talent. The art and, that comes from pain is always so beautiful. I mean, that's, it is. Mm-hmm. It's such a, a healthy way of healing. Uh, it's and it's so not. It's so underutilized. It really is. <laughs> it, it really is because you know, for me, um, healing also comes through creating. Like yes, I do absolutely. A lot of art. I sing. Oh yeah, I, and that's why I write music and sing. That's, a, that's yeah. the whole reason behind it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much healing that comes from that mm-hmm. and being able to just express yourself through some medium. And, you know, so that's why we start doing this campaign through Indigenous Through Hope is, and then I also do like a lot of workshops where, again, I use a lot of art mm-hmm. um, to help kids express themselves and to find healthy ways to tell their stories. Because one of the things that I'm always consciously aware of is that you never know what's going to trigger somebody. And you never know how deeply somebody has been impacted by an experience in their life that even just hearing a story, you know, if somebody's just bluntly open about their story, that could trigger them and, you know, it could cause them to harm themselves. So I'm always conscious about the ways that I share stories and especially mine. Like I, I know when to edit, what to take out. And, you know, and not just not to censor myself, but more as just kind of like courtesy to others Mm -hmm. and find ways that, you know, I can express that same message that you can get through this, that you can experience this, that you could go through this. You can be traumatized, but at the same time, you come out and you can thrive in spite of it. Like it doesn't have to define you. And I try to find ways to send that message without having to rely on you know, graphic details or right, having to right, be yeah. that, or having to have that shock value. And there. art's a great way to do that. Yeah. It really is. I want to see some of the submissions. You'll have to send us the, the links to the videos and things so that we can share oh, them. Yeah. Well, you could go to um, our website for a tribe called geek, www.atribecalledgeek.com. And we have all the submissions posted on our um, website. But we also have them posted on our Twitter and our Facebook and Instagram as well. Awesome. Yeah. Can you share your Facebook and Instagram and all that so people can keep up with you and your organizations here as we wrap up, please? Oh, absolutely. Um, you can find A Tribe Called Geek on Twitter at, at Tribe Called Geek. Um, no A in there. 
<laughs> because of character limitations. <laughs> um, the same with Facebook. It's just Tribe Called Geek. Um, and on Instagram, it is a Tribe Called Geek. <laughs> That's how we ended up with different uh, Twitter handle than the other social media, too, because the character limitations yeah. messed it up. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so we ended up with show on Twitter instead of podcast. <laughs> you can contact the podcast at BrokeBrokenPodcast at gmail.com. The Broken Broken Podcast can be found on Twitter, at Broke Broken Show, on Instagram and Facebook at Broke Broken Podcast.